Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. Today, I'm honored to welcome to the program a professor of political science at Ashland University and the executive director of the Ashbrook Center, Jeffrey Sakinga. How are you, Jeff? Fine, thanks, and thanks for having me. Well, you've been a professor or a visiting scholar, senior fellow at uh, numerous prestigious institutions, Pepperdine, Stanford University's Hoover Institution, and uh, the University of Virginia. You've published writings in noted political science journals. Uh, You've lectured nationwide about religious liberty, American politics, and the Supreme Court. So we will have a lot to talk about in these very interesting times. But first, I wanted to ask you about the Ashbrook Center itself. What is your goal as an organization? Thanks for that. The the mission of the Ashbrook Center is to strengthen constitutional self-government. And we do that by educating our fellow Americans, whether those are students or teachers or citizens, in the history and founding principles of the country. So we're really an educational center above all. The Ashbrook Center was dedicated in 1983 by President Reagan. You've hosted numerous distinguished guests, uh, such as Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Both of those important world leaders advocated strongly for limited central government power and for trusting citizens to have some ability to govern ourselves. What would they tell us in the current situation where we have these amplified cries for socialism? When Ronald Reagan came to dedicate the center in 1983, he spoke about John Ashbrook and their common philosophy of uh, individual freedom, personal responsibility, and limited constitutional self-government. Those are bedrock conservative principles, but more broadly, those are bedrock American principles that go all the way back to our founding. And I think it's amazing when you see today someone like Thatcher and Reagan in the trenches fighting for freedom against communism and in the trenches fighting for freedom against socialism. Maybe not shocking because <laughs> Margaret Thatcher had some great things to say about, you know, socialism is like a vampire. You, it just keeps rising. A system that has so obviously been discredited and put on the dustbin of history has risen again, apparently. It never goes away. I think that vampire analogy is good. And of course, Reagan said, we're never more than a generation removed from losing the liberties that we have. But I don't think particularly young people in America today appreciate that socialism and that dependence on central government is completely incompatible with liberty. They cannot coexist. That's right. And I think too many people today, you know, when you ask them, especially young people, do you favor socialism or capitalism? You know, the public opinion surveys are remarkable in showing that the plurality favor socialism. But when you start to dig a little bit deeper, the question is, what do you mean when, what do you think I mean when I say socialism? A lot of young people, I think, they think it means free, free stuff, free college, free medical care, things like that. Um, I don't think they quite understand the the historical meaning of socialism, and I don't think they understand the implications for what Hayek called the road to serfdom, that once you start down a certain road 
of government provision of all kinds of quote unquote free things, which we know of course are not free, but require taxation. Um, once you start down that road, the, the road of redistribution leads to the road, leads down the path of control, control of individuals, control of societies, families, communities. History has shown that over and over again. It would seem like it should be an easier principle to communicate that the government is not the source of anything it might provide. In fact, their balance book is close to negative 27 trillion. So what are they going to provide it with? And where do they think that the money comes from, if not from the people who produce things to be taxed? So I'm perplexed by how that obvious truth escapes people. Well, look, and I, I actually think it goes back pretty deep to uh, a confusion that a lot of people have, which started with the progressive movement in the early 20th century about, in fact, where their, their liberties themselves come from. You know, the American founders understanding uh, of liberty was that you had it, that it was God given, that these liberties pre-exist government. Government exists, as the Declaration says, to secure our rights. It doesn't grant those rights. And I think there's been, a, there was a, a definite attempt to shift the public mind by the progressive movement and progressive theorists in the 20th century to say, no, no, government gives you your rights. So it can provide more rights and more things to you that you have a right to because it, that's, that's how government operates as opposed to the founders understanding, which was, and this would be true across all the founders, no matter what their policy disputes were, they would agree that the individual has pre-existing liberties and it's government's job to protect those, to secure those, not give those. And so I think this, this notion of, uh, of socialism as sort of a free lunch for everybody for which no one has to pay, I think it goes more deeply in, into the fundamental notion of rights. So for example, the idea that individuals have a right to private property, that is a fundamental bedrock American founding principle. Government doesn't give you that right and it can't take away that right. And so if you start from that basic principle, you see that things like capitalism and the free market really just flow from these political ideas and principles, which, as I say, go all the way back to our founding. I remember being completely stunned a, a few election cycles ago when at the Democrat National Convention, somebody said, government is something to which we all belong. And I thought, uh, no, no. <laughs> I reject that pretty hard. Well, what are the most important issues facing America right now from your perspective? Always the per one of the perpetual questions is, what is the purpose of government? What's its proper scope and role, particularly the federal government? Um, that is a continuously uh, important question. I think that we're not seeing a lot of debate and discussion about that, which is interesting to me. So I'd like to see a reanimated debate and discussion about, in fact, what's the proper purpose and role of government. But I don't think we're seeing that. I think we're seeing a lot, of course, um, cultural issues, social issues, and not just issues, but sort of attitudes, cultural attitudes, including things, sim simple things like, is America good or bad? Mm. And I think you see a concerted effort on the left, at least the radical left side of the spectrum, to try to convince the public that America is at its root, 
and oppressive and unjust country. It's not a new thing. It started with the new left way back in the 60s, but I think it has reemerged very prominently now. And we saw it, uh, we've seen it really throughout this entire year. And, and that is a strain of American political argument that um, is really, I think, dangerous. It needs to be, needs to be taken on headlong. Uh, whether it's the 1619 project as a journalistic part of that or, or, or any other thing out there, movement or argument. But what we're, that's a really, really important question. You know, the goes to the heart of is America good or bad? And if your answer is bad, then you want to remake America. You want to transform America into something that it's not. If your answer is America is good, then you want to conserve what's good and maybe reform things to make the good a little bit better. But that's a basic philosophical difference. I think that we're seeing out there. It is, Jeff, and it's so important because I thought when candidate Senator Barack Obama said to us before we ever first elected him that his intention was to fundamentally transform this nation into something completely different than America, I considered that a completely disqualifying statement. But people just let that roll off like he couldn't possibly mean what that obviously means. But he was serious, and they're still serious about that. They do not want America to be what it always has been. And it seems like debate these days disappears because the objective is no longer to advance an idea, but to get the opponent to shut up. And that's not helpful. But also, they personalize everything. So if somebody presents a principle such as, Everyone has the right to own their own property. If I disagree with that now in the current debate climate, I just had to find somebody who championed that idea and point out something they ever did or said that was wrong and say, therefore, you cannot agree with that person because they're obviously a bad person. So discount everything they ever said. That seems ridiculous to me, but that's what I observe in current debate. Is that your experience or am I missing that? I'm coming out of the education world, as you know. We're located at a university. Uh, our university is really very uh, sane compared to a lot of universities, thank goodness. But this fundamental notion that all you have are justifications for what you want, you don't have truth and real argument. And that the mind is not free to pursue the truth but it's determined by your race, your class, your gender, your whatever, and that's just how you think. And so everything you say is just a rationalization and a justification to advance your interest. That is a pernicious idea. It is fundamentally contrary to pursuing the truth. It's fundamentally contrary to things like free inquiry, free speech, uh, freedom of the press. It's fundamental and it corrupts all of that. So for example, what it does with the press is it makes journalists say, I've got a narrative, I'm going to construct a narrative, and I'm just going to advance my narrative and find facts that fit that, as opposed to saying, I'm going to try and pursue the truth and reveal the truth, whatever my particular viewpoints are. And I think we've seen a real corruption of journalism uh, in the last decades because of this idea. So, you know, it's one of the things we do at Ashbrook. We emphasize over and over again, we believe the human mind is free, but I think we're seeing a concerted effort to turn people's minds away from that basic view of education. The way, Jeff, that you described the, the new journalist approach uh, is corrupt. And it, it reminded me of a word picture. Imagine a courtroom 
in which the prosecutor is not interested in finding out the truth of the incident being tried, but they hate the person who is the defendant and they want to make them suffer. So whatever they can do to make that happen matters and the truth doesn't matter at all. Everyone would obviously recognize that that's unjust, but we don't seem to recognize the wrongness of doing that in news reporting. But speaking of courts, the Supreme Court is a focal point lately. You obviously have studied the the role of the Supreme Court and how it's supposed to work. Judge Barrett is being considered and candidate at this point. Joe Biden is intending to add more justices to eradicate the influence of what we would call originalists on the court. What do Americans most need to consider about these matters? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, we need to remember, um, you know, I'm a strong proponent of originalism in jurisprudence. And I I think it's, um, it it lets the political branches and the people decide questions uh, that are political and and sort of uh, moral and constitutional in nature and lets the courts decide questions that are legal in nature. I'm a big proponent of that. I've thought for a long time that the Supreme Court actually has too much authority in American life. It decides too many issues that should be actually decided by the people and their representatives. There's nothing wrong with healthy, vigorous argument about important questions, uh, including at the national, but also at the state level and federalism among the states. on on lots of different questions. I think that's really important. I think the Supreme Court um, has sometimes interjected itself on and declared national rules for things or national rights or invented rights that really are arguments for the states to have and the people to have. Uh, There certainly are clear for, you know, clearly individual rights that are in fact constitutional and need to be protected against all levels of government. That's certainly true, and there is a role for courts in that. But I think it needs the courts need to be careful and restrained in, in, in discussions of those rights. So I think one thing we see is how elevated the Supreme Court has become in authority, because we all have been told as an article of faith that the Supreme Court is the final authoritative interpreter of the Constitution, that it it can't be wrong, or even if it is wrong, we all have to bow down and agree to what the Supreme Court says. There is a long tradition in America from both political parties of presidents and others disagreeing with that basic idea and saying, hey, look, we're all interpreters of the Constitution. People forget that sometimes. You know, when the legislature, Congress t- considers a, a bill, I certainly hope they're considering whether it's constitutional or not, because they can't, they don't have the authority to pass an unconstitutional law. I certainly hope the president, when the president goes to sign it or veto it, can says, is this law constitutional or unconstitutional? They're engaging in acts of constitutional interpretation all the time. So the idea that it's just the federal courts or just the Supreme Court that interprets the Constitution, um, that is simply wrong. It's not in the American tradition. It's not what Thomas Jefferson thought. It's not what Abraham Lincoln thought. It's not what Franklin Roosevelt thought. It's not what Ronald Reagan thought. All of them knew that there was a role for the citizens and their representatives to play in interpreting the Constitution. So some of this intense furor over Judge Barrett and over the size of the court is because we allowed the court or given the court so much authority over the meaning of the Constitution and over our public life that that as a result, it's very, very high stakes. It is particularly for 
the Democrats because they have determined, and I think correctly, that they cannot convince majorities of Americans that we should legislate their agenda. Uh, it is not what Americans would want in, in larger numbers. And so they use the courts to override that. And uh, California is, is great about that. The citizens will do propositions and overwhelmingly vote a certain way. And a court in California will just say, well, you don't get a say in that citizens of California. I recall that uh, regarding your point about how the legislature and the president should first consider what the Constitution allows, a recent Republican Congress put into consideration a bill that would say, for every piece of legislation, we must have the quoted reference in the Constitution that permits us to do that. And the Democrats said, no way. That seems odd to me. And look, I think that there's an area where, of all the things, you'd think that we could have bipartisan agreement on the notion that, look, we, we have to abide by the Constitution. Well, this is why discord in this country between the parties has grown and grown, because when the time was that we all, or most of us, uh, the majorities of both parties, had the same end result in mind, then it was easy to debate how do we get there? What are the policies that might take us there? But once we get to the point where one side wants to fundamentally transform America into not America, compromise is much more difficult because do we destroy America just a little bit? No, most people are like, no, not at all. And so now it's a little bit more absolutist on both sides of like, no, we will not let you fundamentally transform America or, hey, we must fundamentally transform America. That's a different question than how do we get there? Well, given uh, that the Supreme Court is, at least from this layperson's view, supposed to protect against any changes to the original purpose and intent of the Constitution, except as are brought about by amendments, it seems to me like the term liberal Supreme Court justice has to be an oxymoron. Well, I, I guess it depends on what a person means by a liberal Supreme Court justice. But, you know, I mean, that I think you're fundamentally right. It's something that Justice Scalia said, the, that the role of the court, think about constitutional rights, like Fourth Amendment rights. He always said, and people are sometimes surprised by this, Justice Scalia was a very strong supporter of the Fourth Amendment, protecting the people against unreasonable searches and seizures. And sometimes people think, oh, Justice Scalia, really? No, if you study his writings, um, he he uh, had a very deliberate, made a very deliberate attempt to re to restore the original meaning of the Fourth Amendment to protect the right of the people against unreasonable searches and seizures. And his argument was, look, I'm not trying to be an activist here. All I'm doing is trying to conserve the amendment as it was originally understood when it was adopted. And if we want to make changes to that, fine, make changes, but do it by constitutional amendment. Yes, sir. Not by the judiciary. So it was an interesting example there of he reached some opinions and wrote some opinions that you might call liberal from the political point of view, for example, in favor of de criminal defendants and against the police in matters of search or limiting the powers of police in certain areas in search. But he would never have thought of himself as being liberal. He would have thought of himself as preserving and conserving the original constitution that was given us to us by the founders. 
So I think he himself would have said, look, you, if you want to go on by results and policy de- decisions, that's not the right way to keep score when you're talking about Supreme Court justices. I agree, of course. And it's easy to understand here in Kentucky, uh, we have Senator Rand Paul, who is considered one of the most conservative senators, but he is right there in line with that of like, okay, well, the Constitution says this about accused rights, so don't violate that. If that aligns with Democrats, yay, but it's a principle that's true no matter which party upholds it. Throughout the past few years, and I think especially in 2020, I observe what seems to be an insistence by what we call the media that citizens buy into a sort of unreality. And lately I've been saying that uh, it seems like they are attempting the notorious psychological ploy of gaslighting on a national scale. Do you think that's accurate? And if so, what can citizens do about that? The media has a lot of influence still. How do we uphold reality in the face of the media telling us, no, what you believe and see is not real? Listen to podcasts like these. (laughs) What I mean is, I, I think, as you say, the media still has influence. But what is interesting to me is how um, how decentralized media is becoming. And I think citizens are becoming to realize, hey, wait a minute, this thing about media bias is really true. And it's not just true in how the media reports a story, but in what stories they re- choose to report, which is often more important than, in fact, what they actually say when they report something. But I think people are discovering that and seeing that. And look, the proliferation of cable news networks, the proliferation of, uh, of, of online media sources, the proliferation of podcasts like yours uh, are a great example that there's a lot of hunger out there. That raises the question of the growing influence of these big tech companies that have the search engines and the ability to control what information is out there the most broadly. And when YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Google can, of, of one accord, whether they conspire to do it or not, all say, Americans, we will not let you see or hear this on our platforms, like the doctors who decided they had a different opinion about a certain treatment protocol for COVID. They didn't try to say on the Google, Facebook, Twitter, etc., we disagree and here's what what we wish you would think instead, they said, we will disallow anyone to see or hear that. And that to me is shocking. But it's also in the kind of questions that the media asks and don't ask. Vice President Biden in his uh, campaign, in quotes, he's not really campaigning, but he's had very few opportunities for the media to question him. But most recently, in light of what may be the most grotesque scandal in our lifetimes, the media asked him, what flavor milkshake did you get? That that seems odd. And I think that was just basically saying, hey, American citizens, we, the media, hate your guts, and we're not going to ask what is important. We're going to ask something that's trivial because we like this guy and we don't want to ask the important question. And when somebody did ask an important question about the Supreme Court, Biden says, you don't deserve to know the answer to that question. I thought that was disqualifying. But how do you see that, Jeff, in terms of people's reaction to these kinds of media and the way that they determine or try to determine 
you're not allowed to see or hear certain things. Yeah, of course, it's raised real concerns and questions about so things like uh, the Department of Justice filing uh, antitrust lawsuits against big big tech companies, which has interestingly kind of scrambled the left and the right. Um, that, but that used to be a thing of the left and liberals to be skeptical of large corporations, skeptical of monopolies, skeptical of corporate power and the role influence that it has in civic life. Uh, they don't seem to have that kind of skepticism. I mean, just put it that way. Uh, anymore, or not many of them do. There's a few principled liberals who do, but it's become much more, as you know, of a conservative issue and certainly had been important to the Trump administration. So it's interesting how that's flipped around. You know, I'd also say that we're seeing, uh, again, I think a proliferation of media, even outside of these tech giants, where people can still voice their opinions. And I think we're seeing people saying, hey, look, you have to allow honest debate. So so just to take one example, and here's something I've thought for a while, but I think we're gonna see this. The presidential debates and the way they've been run this election have been a disaster. Yes, sir. There's no question about that. Um, the simple fact is this presidential commission on debates has, without understanding it, has picked journalists who who later then show, you know, show themselves to have a clear bias against President Trump, um, which would be just as bad if they picked journalists that had a clear bias against Joe Biden. But the problem is they live in such a uh, sort of Washington media bubble world that they don't even understand that that's bias against someone like Trump. So uh, what I think we're seeing is, you know, they've largely discredited themselves. This idea of presidential election commissions, I'm in favor of going back to the old way where the campaigns say, how many debates should we have? And the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign would sit down, hash it out among themselves. They each would get to pick a moderator. We saw in the town hall that replaced the second debate that at least in Florida, the the citizens who asked President Trump questions were very uh, insightful. They were probing. They were meaningful. They were substantive. And they were not accusatory, but they were also not puffball questions. They were real questions of real substance, of real issues that really mattered. And it gave him a chance to address those things. And even when they didn't see things exactly the same way, both came to some understanding of why they felt the way they did. Whereas when you get Savannah Guthrie talking with the president, all you see is, I hate your guts and I want everybody else to hate you too. That wasn't helpful at all. Okay, Savannah Guthrie is on television, and so she's famous, and people know her. That does not mean that she is any more knowledgeable or insightful about American politics or the kind of questions to ask. And and that that exa- that example you point out shows exactly that. The questions from the citizens at the town hall were really good, <laughs> and in comparison, better than hers precisely because they're not contemporary journalists, because they're citizens who really want to know these things so they can understand how to vote. I'm entirely in favor of those kind of citizen-driven, citizen-oriented elements to the campaign. And I think the comparison, we're going to see more of that as, as the, in the next presidential campaign and the one after that. I think we're moving away from this old-fashioned notion of journalists being the impartial experts because, just because they're on TV or happen to write a newspaper column. That world is going away and it's going to be replaced, I hope, by the kind of things that we're starting to see. 
Well, as we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, Jeff, what are the most significant things that you're hoping Ashbrook will facilitate happening in the next year or so? Yeah, that's a great question. Our mission is to educate our fellow Americans in the history and principles of this country. And we also say and in the habits of, of thought and reflection necessary for self-government. So we want to help cultivate informed patriots. And then in the next year for us, we are really looking to expand our programs for teachers and resources for teachers to get those fundamental documents of America and, and events and, and important moments in our history into their classrooms to empower them to teach their students. We say, look, if we want to reach the younger generations, we need to reach the young through those who teach the young. So for the next year it's a, and, and on, it's a big uh, effort for us, a big push to take our teacher programs to scale nationally. We want to help teachers help their students to discover the truth about America. That's what we're about. And, you know, if your, your listeners want to help us and support us, that's wonderful. Just their support, knowing that we're out there doing that. And they can find us at ashbrook.org and take a look at what we do. That's a wonderful opportunity to connect with those folks and just to see how we're carrying out our mission on behalf of the country. Well, it's a very important mission. So I do encourage listeners, check out ashbrook.org and you'll be encouraged by the work they're doing and it's well worth supporting. And Jeff, thank you so much for your time today. I enjoyed this very much and uh, look forward to speaking with you more in the future. God bless you. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you having me. Now it's time for our special historical segment, featuring a practical example of how core principles are applied. On the 27th of October, 1787, Alexander Hamilton published the first of the Federalist Papers. Between that date and April of 1788, the first 77 of the eventual 85 essays known as the Federalist were published in three sources in New York. Hamilton wrote 51 of the essays, James Madison wrote 29, and John Jay, who would become the first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, wrote five. These writings were very influential, and New York was considered vital to the eventual ratification of the Constitution. There were, of course, opposing views and vigorous debate. Unlike modern debate, thinking people of that day sought to advance topical contentions towards a desired outcome rather than the modern-day degradation that seeks only to silence dissent. What did Hamilton, Madison, and John Jay say that we can directly apply today? Many things, surely. Here are singular quotes from each, not necessarily from the Federalist. Alexander Hamilton, quote, A nation which can prefer disgrace to danger is prepared for a master and deserves one, unquote. This applies to our response to the pandemic in 2020, and the masters are those governors and mayors who have become puppet masters, while the echo of Hamilton is heard in the wise counsel of President Trump who said we must not let fear dominate our minds. James Madison, quote, We have staked the whole future of our new nation, not upon the power of government, far from it. We have staked the future of all our political constitutions upon the capacity of each of ourselves to govern ourselves according to the moral principles of the Ten Commandments, unquote. I hope every listener understands that and recognizes the threats to liberty posed by those in 2020 who advocate for more involvement of government in citizens' lives. No one 
can have liberty without independence from government, and only dependence on God. John Jay, quote, The Bible is the best of all books, for it is the word of God, and teaches us the way to be happy in this world and the next. Continue, therefore, to read it and to regulate your life by its precepts, unquote. This was the first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. I think he had some idea about the founding principles of America. And the founding principles include the fact that we are to govern ourselves by the word of God. There is no separation of church and state that changes or affects that truth. Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July, L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information. And please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.